I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun. a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem. Welcome to the Pothole Problem Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Miller. Right now, I'm sitting in my office on the Portland State University campus, I came in today, not necessarily because I needed to get away from the family that I've been self-quarantined with now for 42 days. It's not that anybody's driving me crazy. I just wanted to get out in the world and see what it was like and come to what I expected to be a ghost town like college campus, and it pretty much is. It's Thursday afternoon, and I'm alone on the sixth floor of the Urban Center building, which otherwise, on week four of the spring term, at this time of day and week, would be bustling with all kinds of activity. It is definitely unusual. I've been listening to the interview for this week's show, getting ready to put together my intro here and to compile it all to upload and do all the stuff that it takes mechanically and technically to make a podcast. Esperanza, my guest this week, is just such a great speaker and so insightful and realistic and energetic and inspiring. The list of adjectives I could apply to Esperanza really goes on and on. I will say that it was a phone interview and the audio quality is not the greatest. She was calling me from rural Oregon where she now lives and it wasn't the greatest connection but it's easy to hear everything she's saying. Just noting that it's a phone interview and it does in fact sound like she's pretty far away on the telephone. Before I get into the interview I want to say a little bit more about Esperanza and to do so I'm actually just going to read her biography from the We Count Oregon website. She has a number of different activities that she's involved in right now, but the main one in this moment is that she's the campaign manager for We Count Oregon, an organization that is working to ensure that everybody in the state of Oregon is counted in the 2020 census. I'm going to read her bio from that webpage. The page is linked in the show notes. There's also a link to the consulting firm that she's the founder and CEO of. You can find out more about her there as well. Esperanza Turvalon Garrett is a queer Afro-Puerto Rican woman and a native daughter of Oakland. She is the CEO and founder of Dancing Hearts Consulting, a progressive political consulting firm that curates innovative ideas, programs, and campaigns to challenge the status quo and test emerging strategies that change the political game to win long-term change for the people most impacted by systemic oppression. Esperanza was the first woman of color to lead a 501c3, 501c4, and PAC collaborative civic engagement formation focused on mobilizing progressive voters of color in the United States. 
Her ability to build grassroots power in neighborhoods, at the ballot box, and at City Hall has earned her a solid reputation as a savvy electoral strategist, a seasoned political organizer, and a power-building innovator among social justice activists and philanthropic leaders. As far as I know, and from what I could get out of the interview, all of that is absolutely true. She also happens to be a great storyteller and a very insightful person whose life is worth learning about. And that's what you're going to do in this interview. So here it goes. You've been involved in some form of political activism for pretty much your whole adult life. Is that right? Yeah, for my whole life, actually. You know, my parents were both political activists in the 70s in California. And I feel like I was really raised in the movement for social and racial justice. Well, that answers the question I was going to ask you, which was what got you involved. What are some of the early memories you have that cemented your engagement? You know, it's like the only thing I ever didn't want to be was an organizer. And it's actually the only thing um, that I think I was ever positioned or, or raised to be. You know, both of my parents were activists. My mom moved to California thinking that, you know, there was going to be a revolution and she was going to help change the world. And my dad came from, from New York um, hoping, you know, to do similar work. And, you know, my, my parents raised us in, in Oakland in a time when Oakland was really a black city of a sort of the Detroit of the West. And race and racism uh, was impacting particularly black communities in some devastating ways, from economic injustice to uh, police brutality and, and state violence. You know, black folks were having a hard time. My parents felt like as, as black people, it was really our responsibility to stand up and to say no to injustice. And so the first time I was ever on a picket line, I was six weeks old, and my mother had uh, taken me out, swaddled tightly for a California picket in front of UC Berkeley to ensure that the Bakke decision, which later becomes affirmative action, would be put in place so that, you know, we could be sure that we had representation in education and that they were allowing the best and the brightest people of color to, to be educated and to really lend a different view to academia. And so, you know, I don't remember that, but there are pictures, so I know I was there. You know, the first organizing that I ever remember doing, I was in the fourth grade. And we organized, my brother is uh, four years older than me, and he and I and some other movement kids that we grew up with decided to organize a walkout of schools. We wanted to boycott IBM, uh, the company IBM, who had invested in Coca-Cola, which was supporting apartheid. And so we organized 4,000 students to walk out of Oakland Public Schools, and it culminated at a big rally, which I was asked to speak at to talk about why, as a young black woman, I felt like it was important that IBM, who had computers in all of our schools and whose you know, technology we were using to learn how to read and spell, actually was aligned with a set of politics that respected black people and that respected equity and justice um, at a time when people in South Africa were living under the system of apartheid, oppression, and brutality. And so we organized a huge rally and, and I was, you know, talking and, and getting people riled up. And I remember feeling like it wasn't so much what I was doing that was exciting to me. It was the response from other people that other kids were standing up and, and kids who had never spoken in front of anybody, you know, any stage or audience were able to get up and, and say how the experience they were having was connected to a politic outside of themselves. It really molded me and shaped me. One, to be able to be a person who can speak my convictions without fear. Um, but I think more importantly, to be clear about a set of politics that were not popular, that weren't popular then, and that I think as I've aged continue to be unpopular. 
with the reminder that all of the things that are now illegal were at one time legal. And that legality doesn't actually dictate or get to dictate what we think is right. Well, that's a great background. And, you know, you don't know a life outside of organizing and activism. What did you say? Six weeks you were at your first march or six months? A six-week-old man. Six weeks. I was just out of the womb. So you do not know anything of a life outside of being an organizer and an activist. What do you think are the biggest challenges to sustaining a life as an organizer and activist? You certainly can speak from the long view on this one. You know, it's really interesting. What I think is required to sustain in movement work or activism actually has shifted throughout my career. When I was in my 30s, I really just wanted to make an impact for my community. I wanted people to hear my voice. I wanted to sort of bring a chair, a folding chair to the table. Um, and I was willing to do that at all costs. So I, you know, I was um, unable to sort of sustain and maintain long-term love relationships. You know, the work always came first before my health, before before anything. And I was so committed, deeply, deeply committed that I was doing a set of, you know, sacrificial land stuff that I had learned mostly from the movements of the 70s uh, and 80s that actually are, I grew out of and I think are unhealthy. And as I've matured into my early 40s, you know, I've begun to real realize that my longevity in this work also has to be connected to living the values I hope we have as a nation and as a people over time in my day-to-day life. So, you know, really rooting and grounding into practices that sustain me. So, you know, it's been a lot of things over the years. I, I've Div was a yogi for years, and I would do four-hour daily practices um, of yoga and meditation, and that was amazing and helpful for grounding me and just setting me up with a perspective about the world that's like, you know, what we're doing and, and what we're seeing is both an external, right, an external process of changing the world and an internal process of managing yourself and changing yourself to be able to show up for the fight in your, hu- in your full humanity, in, in the embodiment that you want to bring to this work um, or that you're being asked to bring from your ancestors and from your lineage to this, to this moment in history. I mean, I think, you know, when we moved to Oregon, one of the things that was really important was that we have land and that we'd be in a space and place where we could steward this beautiful indigenous land, not as owners, not as landlords and owners in that way, but really as part of a larger ecosystem. And Oregon is so beautiful uh, in Ashland, Oregon, where we was just, I mean, it's got to be God's favorite country in this whole place, as far as I'm concerned. And we have been cultivating a life that is rural. So I definitely grew up in the city, total city kid. My dad taught me how to ride horses when I was two years old. And when we moved here, the first thing I wanted to do was set up a ranch so that I could ride horses. And really cultivating that time and connection with horses and that love that I share for them. And also cultivating our own food and sort of having a space to, to just be to feel what it feels like outside of my activism and my passion to just be in my body uh, and to be with the land and to be connected uh, to something bigger than myself. Now, it sounds like you've gotten to a really good place, a very healthy and sustainable place. Do you have regret that you didn't get there earlier? Or do you look back at the time where you basically were all in for the movement, regardless of what it did for your health and your love life and your relationship to the earth? Do you wish you'd started what you've been doing earlier? Or is that just kind of, do you think, part of the development of a person in life as an activist? I'm not a person who has many regrets. And I don't imagine that this would have been possible for me earlier. I think a lot of it is about my own maturation in the process of being in the movement 
And I, I, I just like, I feel like I've arrived and frankly, like I'm arriving. I think Oregon is such a special place that there's a kind of, of stillness or slowness to this place that allows for an unfolding. And that unfolding is unknown. Like, I don't know where this is going, but I know that it's a very gentle place to be. And so I'm, I'm enjoying that without regret, really. If a young person, say, you know, a 17, 18-year-old person burning with passion to change the world came to you and said, well, you look like you have it really together and I really admire what you are doing, what's your advice for me right now as a young activist? Oh, I'm so fortunate to have so many amazing young people, not 17-year-olds, but young people uh, who I work with now who ask me for advice that is similar to this. I, you know, I think that every single one of us has a purpose. I think that we are all sent here to do something and that we're sent to do whatever it is that we're sent to do. I think that young people in this movement, in this moment, need to tap into what that is for them. I think that young people have to be able to understand the politic of what they're doing. So it's not enough, I think, for young people to say, like, I love the environment. I mean, I love the environment, too. Uh, but you love the environment, why? For skiing, for, for horseback riding, for nice river runs. That's fine. That's great. We, we need fresh water for the river runs. But what is the deeper value statement that being an environmentalist means for you? Is it that you want to live in the ecosystem? You want to be a part of a, an ecosystem that includes humans. Human beings is part of uh, one piece of how the ecosystem works rather than one that dominates or extracts. You know, or, or is it that you want to actually get onto another show and be able to like talk about how amazing this work is? I think that social media in, in a lot of ways has created this amazing platform for people to be able to, to use their profile, use their personality, use their celebrity, if you will, to leverage for movements in a really positive way. I think that the blowback of that model is that then people's whole identity is caught up in their movement work. And that is a tall point from which to fall. When it comes down to it, I think in this work, knowing why you're doing something is the most sustainable way for you to stay in the fight when you get knocked down. Because listen, we all get knocked down. Nobody comes in and wins every fight. That's just not real. That's not life. And I think for young people, often the desire to want to get something right the first time and, and that just that the beauty of possibility when they're young is such a driving motivation that that's where the greatness comes from. So I never want to go anybody's excitement about trying to change the world. I mean, to the contrary, I'm like, dream bigger. And I want people to not be so caught up in, in taking the defeats and the losses personally. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges young people have. They can, they can see the fight, but they can't see the war. You know, trying to get folks to think about, well, what, you know, what is this building for the next thing and for the next thing? Probably my biggest recommendation off of folks. Know what you're fighting for and, and see the long game. You're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast, created by White Tiger Productions. At White Tiger Productions, we create experiences. If you have an idea for a podcast, a workshop, or a show of any kind, we'll help you go from concept to execution. We provide creative direction and production support. We've got a podcast studio, writers and storytellers, sound engineers and editors, designers, videographers, hosts, creative coaches, everything you need to manifest your creative potential. You name it or even vaguely describe it, and we'll take you from dream to finished product. White Tiger Productions. You can do what you think, and we can help you.
visit us at youcandowhatyouthink.com and tell us what you're thinking about. I love to talk to people about the idea of fortitude and perseverance, frankly. And I feel like as a Black woman, as a Black queer woman who grew up in a city and has been working for justice, racial, gender justice, literally for 40 years, there is something about understanding how to persevere that is beyond you being able to pull yourself up from the bootstraps. Perseverance is really about the ability to to learn and to be sort of always in this orientation of experimentation, to try something, to fail, to take pieces that worked and to try them again, to really see your life and certainly this movement work as architecture, as something that we're building together. And I think the other piece that's important, which I feel like is implied, but I want to make sure is articulated, is that it's actually not about you. It's not enough to have an individual person who has great ideas. An individual person is awesome, but what we actually need is a shift in consciousness in collective consciousness, and not in some esoteric, flighty way, but actually like a shift in consciousness that equals a shift in practices that ensure that we can all live our best lives. I don't think that that is far-fetched. I don't think the idea of changing the world is far-fetched. It's not a miracle. It's not going to happen by happenstance. Change happens because there are everyday people, just regular people, who are driving with a set of values and a vision for a better world. And that can only be great. But building it is not fast. It's a slow process because there are so many people and so many opinions and perspectives, and they actually all matter. And our work is to be coming to terms with each other about what a world can look like that we can all live with. And that's going to require some sacrifice. It's going to require a lot of relationship building and a lot of discussion and education. Um, but it's also not something you can do alone. You are giving such great advice, and I'm always looking to extract advice from my guests, and you're just flowing with it. I want to turn this to you a little more personally and ask you the question that I ask all my guests, which is, what is something that used to outrage you and no longer does, and what do you think has led to that change? Because I'm not okay because I'm a movement person, and it shouldn't be, but I really used to hate demonstrations. I mean, it might be that my parents used to make us go to demonstrations. Like, you know, we always went to Sasa Chavez Day. We always celebrated May Day. You know, if there was a general strike, then we joined it. I remember when I was a kid in California, the farm workers had a strike on grapes. And I was 14 years old when I tasted a grape for the first time because they had been striking for so long. And so we lived these values and and we were so engaged with sort of like this values first lifestyle that we would go to these demonstrations and I hated it. The bullhorns and the standing, the marching, and I just felt like this is not getting us anywhere. And so I wouldn't participate. I actually got fired as an assistant at a, a law office in the Bay Area because I told them that I would not join an anti-war protest because I thought it wouldn't make a difference. And I mean, they didn't technically fire me for that. Two weeks later, I did not have my job. <laughs> I remember, I remember that moment so clearly because I was like, "This is just stupid. This is not how change gets made." And then, uh, ten or twelve years ago, we had a huge general strike in Oakland, and you know, I didn't know how many people were going to show up, but fifty 
6,000 people participated in this general strike. And I was leading, co-leading with other people, uh, a piece around the, the children and family march because I have a son and at that time he was young. And, um, you know, we organized, we had thousands of parents and kids marching in this general strike. And it shut the city down and, and we were able to actually like win a bunch of demands for city workers and for other communities. And I remember feeling the feeling of being out with other people and the rush, like the energetic rush of feeling far more powerful than I felt as an individual or a single mother in my community. And that collective power of being out and really expressing our righteous indignation for a system that was not respecting workers and not respecting our students and our families. And I felt really empowered. Uh, and a few years later, some dear friends of mine uh, decide to shut down a BART train on Black Friday. They shut down the BART train and begin what becomes these massive protests for Black Lives Matter, just shutting things down to make sure that we're having conversations about Black people and state violence against Black people. And at the time, I was in New Orleans, and I remember seeing it on the news and then getting a text from a friend. And I immediately was like, I can't believe I'm not there to be a part of this. How can I help? And so I started raising money for bail funds and doing all of this work. And, you know, two weeks later, I get a call from the mayor of Oakland. And she was asking me what I thought should happen to these people who were going to be charged with trespassing and all these other things for, for shutting down a art system um, during some of the biggest commercial days in, in our area. Big economic boom that was shut down because people effectively couldn't get to the stores. And I remember in that moment feeling like this was so powerful, this idea that they were just going to shut this whole thing down for a day and risk going to jail and being charged and all kinds of things could have happened to them. And for them to put their lives on the line and then for me to somehow pulled into that process, you know, by a mayor asking me what I thought should happen felt like a power play, a real power play all around and that they had thought it through. So we'd already have the conversation about what I thought about it. And I was able to advise her to drop the charges and make sure that those, you know, to, to actually make a statement about black lives. And over the period of time, the, the mayor did end up doing those things that I recommended, although that's not where she started at all. But just coming to grips with how powerful people power is. And that really smart demonstrations of power ha- can happen on a mass scale with 50,000 people or with nine people on a barge. Well, that's a great story, and it is a very surprising tale of transformation for a lifelong movement person to go from despising demonstrations to seeing the power and feeling the power. Thanks for sharing that story. I really love it. I have one more question for you before I let you go. You are currently working on the census, and you're in an organization that is attempting to make sure that everybody's counted and working to try to make sure that hard-to-count populations are included in the census, and there's all kinds of important reasons for that. But if you weren't doing that right now, what would be your backup commitment? What, what would you be doing instead? Oh, I mean, I think I'm so fortunate that I get to work on We Count Oregon to help to make sure that we have a complete count here in the state, which is now my home state. I think that if I wasn't working on this, I would be working on the presidential election. I think that we have seen the ineptitude of our current leadership and this administration and that that there are real lives on the line. I mean, COVID-19, you know, we are seeing spikes in deaths in all communities, but some of the newest 
uh, most recent articles are actually saying that, no surprise, COVID is actually impacting Black communities first and worst. And that is because of ongoing systemic gaps and oppression uh, of a system that has been built on our backs and is ready to throw all of us out the window. And I don't expect it to just be Black folks. I expect for Latinx communities, migrant workers, folks who are undocumented and other immigrants, refugees to be impacted next. You know, while politics are certainly all local, there is no denying that the Trump administration has made it clear that our people are on the menu. And I think it's wrong, and I actually think there's something we can do about it. I think voting is one of those things that's fun, and it's free, and it's sexy. We can lose sight of the the forest for the trees. Um, again, that piece around, like, do you see the, the fight we're in, or do you see the war? And I just think that we have to do something now. We actually can't continue to lose this kind of ground as a, as a country. I think that we have begun to set horrible precedents about uh, who America is and what we care about. And I think that we have a responsibility, and I certainly have a responsibility to help shape some of that. No, unfortunately or fortunately, all of my time is going to the census, so that's really my focus. But if I wasn't doing that, I would be all in 2020 on uh, on the presidential. Well, thank you for that. And I really appreciate your time and your stories and your insight. I think there's a lot to take out of this interview. And I'm really grateful for you giving me and my audience some of your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was super fun. And I appreciate you putting together these questions. They are definitely not run of the mill. And I had a good time. So thank you. Well, that's this week's episode. I want to thank Esperanza for speaking to me on the telephone. She also did invite me to go stay with her in rural Oregon. And it sounds amazing. And I can't wait for the time that I can take my family down there and close the social distancing gap by actually being around other people. For next week's episode, we're going to stay in the kind of activist part of the political world. My guest is Allison McCaffrey. She's the author of a book called The Politics of the Possible about her grandmother, who was a groundbreaking female state legislator in the state of Washington. Allison does a lot of work in politics. She is at this point, among other things, an arts activist. She's turned portions of her book into a one-woman show which was playing until all of the events of that type in our world were halted. So that's next week's episode. Until then, of course, we have a song. I'm reaching way back into my archive for a 2010 recording that was made in my dining room. And this is Chuck Massey singing an untitled composition of his own. Thanks, as always, for listening, and enjoy the song. And I'm